Now, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to back up to chapter 17 tonight, and we're going to read from verse 22 of Luke 17 down to verse 8 of chapter 18. This, I believe, is one theme, so I want to go through the entire section together with you tonight. Luke chapter 17 and verse 22. Stand with me together and let's read from Luke 17, 22 down through 18 and verse 8. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, Shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And all of God's people said together, Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, the question concerning this passage in Luke 17 is often raised, does this apply to A.D. 70 or does this apply to the end of the world? And we will touch on that briefly, but I really want to get to the application that our Lord brings to us tonight. The teachings of Jesus are shocking largely because we have created a character of Jesus in our minds that isn't quite right. For some reason, there is this false Jesus, this false Christ that arises in our minds and the teachings of the churches throughout the ages. In fact, 
Jesus warns us about those who will point out the coming of the Son of Man. Look here, look there. The coming is here, the coming is there, or he is there, or he is over here. And so there are these caricatures of Jesus, and there are these expectations of his return at certain times or seasons. But it's for us to take the words that he gives us in his parables, the words he gives us in his teachings of the Gospels, and take this as the description of the real Jesus. We've used this phrase before, will the real Jesus please stand up? And I think that's something we need to be asking all the time. We, we want to know Jesus. We want to know the Son of God. We want to know who he is. He is the incarnation. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's the human nature and the divine nature in one person. And the best way that we would come to know God is really through Jesus Christ. It's through the incarnation. The coming of Christ in Luke 17 is all about judgment. The theme of the passage is not so much about redemption as it is about judgment. And I think that should be plain. Now, one of the things that the chapter divisions offer us is the idea that this is a new subject or this is a new context, but it really isn't. It's a continuation of the same talk that he's giving to his disciples. So it's important for us to obliterate the chapter divisions, you know, as we read the Bible and read from one chapter to the next, not pay much attention to the chapter division. One of the reasons it's there is so we can look up a passage. We look up a verse. We know where to find it. But outside of that, the, the chapters and verses don't have that much of an import for us, especially when it comes to the Gospels. But uh, as, as you know, uh, as from my teachings on the study of Revelation of future times, eschatology and such, I don't really spend a lot of time speaking on eschatology. As if these passages only apply to AD 70 or as if these passages only apply to some future event at the end of the world. It's fun to talk about the past. I actually love to study history. It's fun to talk about the future, a future on earth. But all of that is fairly irrelevant to life here and now unless we make relevant application to it. So I think it's important that we bring this to a relevant application to us tonight. Actually, our Lord Jesus gives us three applications to these passages, whether it be Matthew 24 or Luke 17 or later on in Luke chapter 22, he gives us three applications, and we brought this out last week. And here they are. These are the three applications for these passages. The first is he who seeks to save his life will lose it. So Jesus said, in fact, in these cases of these folks that were out in the field, don't go back and grab what is in the house, but just leave right away. And don't hold on to what is here on the earth. In other words, don't so be hanging on to earthly possessions that you're not paying attention to the judgment that is coming upon the earth. So, so that's the first application. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. The second application is remember Lot's wife. Uh, don't look longingly back into the values of Hollywood, whether it was Hollywood in the 1940s, 1960s, 1980s, or 2000s. So many have one step in the world and one step in the church. As we talked about this morning, 
But Matthew 24 also reminds us not to beat the manservants and turn towards drunkenness and escapism. That is, the true Christians will be those who are loving the body of Christ, loving the fellow servants, while at the same time eschewing the, uh, the escapism and the drunkenness that so characterizes the life of the world around us. The life of the world around us has always been into escapism. You know, go all the way back into the 1600s and 1700s. Um, you could escape. You know how they escaped back then? They would have signs put out. This would have been about the 1720s before the Great Awakening. They have signs put out in front of these shops. Uh, you can get drunk for one pence, and you can get dead drunk for two pence. Straw is provided. So if you, you know, fall down and uh, into the straw, you can just lay there in the straw overnight. So, you know, escapism has always been around. You can get drunk. It's about the only way in which people could do it back in the 1720s. But, but now people can escape reality and avoid the, the real things that are talked about in God's word and escape the torments of conscience uh, by, by the Internet and by movies and thousands of escape ramps off the highway of reality. So many ways to do it today. You can do it through fantasy novels, sci-fi novels, uh, so many ways in which to escape reality. The world has provided so much, so convenient today, so many diversions, distractions. But back then, the 1720s, you know, you could either get drunk or dead drunk and, and the straw would be provided for free. So, so the, the warning here is, is not to get drunk, not to escape, not to avoid reality but to focus in on the things that Jesus is teaching. Um, so do not go into escapism. And do not beat the manservants. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ with love. This is the message that Jesus gave from Matthew 24. So again, the applications relating to these eschatological passages are very important. You know, don't just talk about eschatology. Say, okay, well, what is the lesson that we're taking from eschatology? It's fun to go to prophetic conferences. People did that in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Remember the prophetic conferences? I don't know if anybody remembers about them. But, but it's fun to talk about prophecy. But Jesus doesn't want to get us stuck in a prophecy. What he wants you to do is not get drunk. Don't, don't be escaping. Don't, uh, don't be beating the manservants and maidservants. Remember Lot's wife. And then thirdly, pray for God's judgment to come. So that's the third application, which we'll take up here in the first few verses of chapter 18. Pray for God's judgment. Find that shocking? Again, again, you know, the teachings of Jesus, you go back to them, you say, this wasn't exactly what I was expecting for a sermon on a Sunday night. Pray for judgment. But that's what Jesus is telling us to do tonight. Pray for God's judgment. Pray passionately, pray continuously, pray, pray, pray for judgment. Now, this applies to any time in history where the world looks like Sodom or where the world looks like pre-flood Noah. This applies to any civilization that has any great access to the gospel but has rejected Christ. And this applies to any time where the world has persecuted the church and the adversary 
is attacking the church with relentless force. Let me say that one more time. This admonition to pray for God's judgment applies to any time in history where the world looks like Sodom, where the world looks like pre-flood Noah, where a civilization has had great access to the gospel but has rejected Christ, and where the world has persecuted the church. The narrative, as I said, from chapter 17 is the backdrop for chapter 18. The days of the Son of Man are the days of judgment. They will look like the period around the time of the flood. They will look like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment will not be expected, and that's the the main thrust of what Jesus is telling us in chapter 17. The judgment will not be expected. It will come suddenly upon those who are not waiting for it or praying for it. The judgment will come suddenly upon those who are not waiting for it or praying for it. Now, this reference to the Son of Man is a reference to Jesus coming in judgment. He refers to himself, by the way, in the Gospels as the Son of Man. This is his most favorite, most familiar reference to himself in the Gospel accounts. He is constantly referring to himself as the Son of Man. But the Son of Man passage is a reference to the reference in Daniel, which Jesus again picks up in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. This is at his trial before the high priest. Again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And this is how Jesus responds to Caiaphas at the trial. Listen. Jesus said, I am the Christ. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's this point that Caiaphas rips his clothing and accuses Christ of blasphemy. But here's what's important. Caiaphas would have been somewhere around 84 years of age at the destruction of Jerusalem. So the prophecy that Jesus gives here, I think, probably applied to to Caiaphas and his witnessing the destruction that came upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, at the end of this account, in Luke chapter 17, look at the very last verse here. They answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. What does this mean? Well, there were other ensigns used by the Roman armies prior to 104 B.C., but after 104 B.C., for the next 600 years, the eagle was the only ensign used for all of the Roman armies. Every legion was led forth into battle with an ensign carrier carrying this sign of the eagle. They called it the Aquila. The legions were sometimes themselves called Aquilas. Aquila is the Latin word for eagle. So the Jews treated the Christians very badly in the first century. Well, we know what they did to Christ, but Stephen was the first victim. James, the son of Zebedee, an apostle, and the elder brother of the apostle John was killed by a sword. James the just, Jesus' brother, was thrown from a parapet in Jerusalem 
and then clubbed to death in AD 62. Estimates of thousands of Christians martyred in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying here to his disciples to pray for vengeance, pray for God's avenging the blood of the saints. Now, it's interesting to me that there is a famous song that that we've heard. It's one of the most commonly heard songs on the radio today. It's called, You Are Worthy. But it's interesting that the song doesn't finish the sentence. You are worthy to open the seals. But what are the seals? It's taken from Revelation 5 and verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and nation and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So this is the cry of the saints in Revelation chapter 5, that you are worthy to open the seals. That actually is referenced Peterson's song. But what are the seals? What is Jesus going to do? He's going to open these seals. There's no reference to that. It's more a reference to redemption in Andrew Peterson's song. But this is where he misses it. Christ is worthy to open the seals. Chapter 6 of Revelation follows up immediately. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. He went out conquering to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that people should kill one another, and it was given to him a great sword. And then verse 10, they, that is the saints, cry out again with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So again, this is rather unfamiliar to us. That's why I bring it out tonight, because this is the theme of Luke chapter 18. I, I wouldn't be treating the passage right unless I brought the truth to you from this word, That to open the seals and to pray for judgment is to pray for Jesus to bring judgment upon the earth. And we are to pray for judgment as the saints of the living God who still live here in the 21st century. We are called to pray for judgment, brothers and sisters. But now let me ask this question. Is this incongruous with the instruction that Jesus gave us to love your enemies, bless them that curse you? And I don't think it's incongruous at all. Jesus says for us to love our enemies. We, we, are, we are not to avenge our enemies. We are seeking Christ's vengeance upon his enemies. That's, that's the real thrust of this passage. Jesus forbids any personal vengeance against our enemies. But that should in no way diminish our commitment to God's justice. It's only God who should exercise his justice in the earth. Yet we are called to stand for God's justice, to be passionate for God's justice, to embrace his justice in our prayers, our thoughts, and our daily commitments. So this exhortation applies to any time in history where the world looks like Sodom, 
or where the world looks like pre-flood Noah, or a civilization that has a great access to the gospel but is rejecting Christ. This applies to any time the world is persecuting the church and the adversary is attacking the church with great force. I've gone over the history of persecutions in the history of the Christian church, and what we find is that persecution has picked up substantially over the last eight years. In fact, it was eight years ago I felt the need to offer a daily update on persecutions around the world. I believe these are the most newsworthy things that are happening in our world today. If Jesus would have us to know anything about the news, we should be updated on a daily basis as to what is going on in Christian persecution around the world. And so that's why the worldview in five minutes came about. This is the most significant persecution in at least 500 years of world history. And oftentimes this is the precursor to divine judgment. There have been respites and persecution, as you know. Uh, there wasn't much persecution of Christians between roughly A.D. 325 and A.D. 1252. And that was the year when the Inquisition started up. There was about a thousand years of general peace for believers, at least in Europe. Then there was an increase in persecution from roughly A.D. 1252 to A.D. 1690, which would have been the glorious revolution. And uh, turns out William the Silent uh, was very, very crucial in bringing about a, uh, a, a, an end of the persecutions that came out of the Reformation. It was his grandson who took the throne in England and brought about an end of the persecutions upon the Scottish Covenanters. But that pretty much ended everything. It was a period of persecution that lasted for 390 years. The nations engaging in the most persecutions were France, Spain, and England under the Stuarts. Then you fast forward up to 1840. You had two martyrs in the 1840s, the Whitmans up in Oregon, the state of Oregon. Two martyrs in the 1840s. There weren't really that many martyrs over a period of about uh, 240 years, close to 300 years. In uh, the early part of the 20th century, there actually were a fair number of martyrs. 188 missionaries and thousands of Chinese Christians were killed in the Boxer Rebellion. So that would have been the beginning of some of the first uh, satanic attacks upon the church. It's very interesting. The Boxers were actually demon-possessed. Very interesting. If you read the history of the Boxer Rebellion, uh, they, they were extremely satanic and somehow had this extra uh, supernatural form of power that they seemed to be able to exercise over people. The Boxers were demon-possessed and they were some of the first to bring back persecutions into the modern world. In the 1950s, there were 16 martyrs, both Catholic and Protestant, including Jim Elliott and his friends. 16 martyrs in the 1950s. But then after that, persecution stepped up around the world. Uh, the Reformation influence in England, the United States, protected God's people around the world until Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. It was about a 318-year respite from persecution, and I would put 2008 as the year that persecution started up in full force, and this time the persecution was worldwide. That's what made it so unique. In the year 2020, the number of martyrs were 4,700. In the year 2021, 5,800. Those are estimations uh, in terms of true blue martyrdoms that have been uh, recorded by Open Doors. Open Doors is probably the most accurate record of the martyrs. Now again, most significant martyrdoms that have occurred 
over a period of, say, 500 years. And uh, it's also important to know that God responded to the Jewish persecutions with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. God responded to the Roman persecutions with the destruction of the Roman Empire in the 400s. Remember, the hordes came down and destroyed most of uh, northern Africa and uh, all of that part of the Roman Empire and towards the end of Augustine's life would have been about the 420s, and then that went on for about 200 years in which uh, there were millions upon millions of people slaughtered and the Roman Empire was crushed under the hand of Almighty God. So God responded to the Roman persecutions with the destruction of the Roman Empire. God responded to the persecution brought about by the Roman papacy uh, through the Inquisitions uh, by sending the bubonic plague, wiping out a third of Europe in the 1400s. He responded to the persecutions brought on against the Huguenots by bringing the nightmare of the French Revolution upon France, which arguably wiped out about a million people. So we see that there, there has been successive addresses that God has made to these various persecutions, and, uh, and, and yet why should we pray? And I want to address the application that our Lord gives us here in this passage tonight. Why should we pray for judgment? Such a shocking passage that uh, Jesus encourages a steadfastness, a persistence in prayer for the avenging of the blood of the saints. So why? Why should we pray for judgment? That's the question tonight. Three reasons. Number one, this is the bride of Christ. And I think we forget about this, that Jesus loves his bride. Now, I guess that shouldn't be a shock to any of us, should it? Most husbands-to-be love their brides-to-be. Most husbands do love their brides. They should. And certainly Jesus does. I guess my question, have we properly considered the love that Christ has for his bride? Do we understand how important the church is to him? Some of you have heard my illustration, you know, of the the husband-to-be is standing up there and his bride is coming down the aisle and some ruffian comes in with a baseball bat and starts beating the living daylights out of his bride. How do you think the bridegroom would respond? I've asked that question before, just kind of shake everybody up. And and get them to see that Jesus died on the cross for his bride. He loves his church. He loves his people. He loves his bride. Much more than I think any any other human would love his bride. Jesus loves his bride. Do we understand how important this church is to him? If we did, I don't think we'd speak so negatively of the church. You know, I don't think we would castigate the church. We, we would look at the suffering churches in our area, Harvest Bible Church, and think that church is precious to Jesus. You know, and this church, Reformation Church, precious to Jesus. The church in Iran, the church in Eritrea, where these poor saints are being put in these storage containers, these steel storage containers, and, and, and left to, to rot in 120-degree weather and this very miserable condition, Jesus loves them. Jesus loves his church. He doesn't like to see his bride beaten over and over and over again. When his people were persecuted in Damascus or Jerusalem, you remember what the Lord Jesus did. He struck Saul with blindness and, and called to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He 
he, he saw that as something that was happening to himself. So that's the first reason why we should pray for judgment. Because this is the bride of Christ that's being beaten by the enemy. Secondly, we have a concern about injustice and evil that goes on in the world. And we should. There is, at times, a lack of concern that people have for the persecuted church. Or there's a lack of concern that people have for abortion and those that are victims of abortion. And it it blesses my heart that the Lockmans in our church have given so much for the least of these. Uh, You know, they've done so many opportunities for us to go down to the abortion clinics or, or... over to raise money for the crisis pregnancy centers. And, and uh, every week they present the stories of the persecuted churches, and they've been doing that weekly for the last three to four months. It seems to me we need to continue doing that. Uh, our family has been praying more and more on a daily basis for the persecuted church around the world, and this is because this is the heart of Christ. Now, this is the concern of the widow in the parable. Let's go back to the parable just for a moment. Here's what she says to the unjust judge. She says, she comes to him and says, get justice for me for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God or regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Thus, by her continual coming, she weary me. So this widow has got a heart for those that are abused, especially the, the persecuted church of Jesus Christ. Here's what she says to the unjust judge. Get justice for me. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't just want to passively sit and watch our Christian children getting beaten, our brothers and sisters tortured, and say, oh, well, that just kind of happens. No, evil needs to stop. Amen. Anybody else going amen to that tonight? Like, yeah. No, this needs to stop. See, I'm appealing to any kind of a concern in your life, any kind of commitment to justice in your heart tonight. You see the bride of Christ beaten, or you see uh, the, the evil that's done to hundreds of millions of babies uh, because of the influence of the... the uh, the American governments and such, we should say, no, this needs to stop. The evil of deception, of slander, of torture, of threats and cursings scrawled on our church buildings, death threats, the killings of Christians. This stuff needs to stop. Evil is not sovereign. Evil is not right. Evil should not get the upper hand. Sin doesn't win. Amen. I mean, that just needs to run in our bloodstream a little bit. Where we need to be a little bit of that widow who is willing to to, to get into the throne room of God and say, God, have mercy. God, bring your justice to your people. Unrighteousness doesn't get to beat the judge of the earth, the almighty, holy, infinitely just God over heaven and earth. Every Christian is passionate to seek sin crushed, Evil overcome, injustices and violations of God's law brought to account. These things cannot continue with impunity. It's interesting, if if you don't respond this way, you know what's going to happen? You're going to just start receiving this kind of stuff. You're either going to fight it or you're going to join it. Either you're going to embrace God's law and, and more and more consistently apply it to your own life, 
and apply it to all of the injustices going on in the world, or you're going to wind up accepting it and just living with it. Brothers and sisters, you know, we're not Christians if we're okay with this evil continuing. Jesus is king. These rebels must be stopped. And the parable of the vine dresses brings this out as well. God is not okay with the way that they're treating his people. Remember what happened where the, the vine dressers take control of the vineyard and, and the, the owner of the vineyard sends his servants, they kill his servants, sends his son, they kill his son. And then Jesus said, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? And the Jews who are talking to him says, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And that's when they committed themselves again to kill him. So God just doesn't let these things go. God is more committed to justice than we are. And certainly much more so than the unjust judge. And that is the point that Jesus is making in Luke chapter 18. Alright, so these three reasons why praying for judgment is appropriate. One... This is the bride of Christ who's being beaten by these bad guys. Secondly, this is our commitment to justice, God's justice. And then thirdly, I add this to it because I think this is helpful. Judgment can bring humility. Now, it doesn't always bring humility, but it could. The pride and the wealth of Americans has made it nigh unto impossible to approach them with the gospel. And at this point, I believe that this is our only hope for reformation and revival. The bubonic plague did prepare Europe for the reformation. God, in his providence, brought down a third of Europe. The bubonic plague humbled that entire continent. And do remember, it was John Wycliffe that wrote the first book. He called it The End of the Church. He thought it was the end of the church age on the eve of the bubonic plague. He thought it was the end. He thought it was the end of the church. He thought it was the end of the world. Because of what was going on with the church and what was happening with the destruction of Europe brought about by the bubonic plague. But, but that, that brought about a humbling of Europe, a preparation of Europe for the Reformation, which, of course, has transformed the entire world in some ways. So at this point, judgment, I believe, is our only hope for reformation, revival in this country. 9-11 and COVID-19 humbled America for about a week or a month. But it seems to me that America is going to need more of that. It seems that this judgment will have to be Ten times more intense than what we've seen to soften any hearts to the gospel. So in my personal prayer life, I'm calling for 
out for revival and reformation and judgment. That God would do something. That God would arise. That God would do a work in the world. And in so doing, bring about a great reformation. The earth is crying out for it. The earth cannot tolerate what we're seeing much anymore. The Lord said, verse 6, Hear what the unjust judge says. Shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will there be anybody to pray? And that's the question that Jesus leaves us with. And I'm going to stop here. This is the application for us. Will there be anybody with a passion to pray? Will there be anybody ready for the judgment? Will there anybody be out there to be watchful? Not taking all of the exit ramps off the highway of reality, but realizing judgment is imminent. It's time to wake up. It's time to pray. And to pray for judgment. Periods of tremendous spiritual decline are apparently also attended with a lack of faith and prayerlessness. But God wants us praying. He wants us praying persistently. We start to pray, and over five years, the 20 persons who once prayed fervently for revival and for judgment, they're gone. Now there are only two left, still praying fervently. But faith gathers strength by waiting and praying. Patience has its perfect work in the school of delay. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Our real problem as Christians is that we have not because we ask not. We're not pounding on the gates of heaven enough. Our knocking is too timid. God's telling you, I need a knock. I need a loud knock. I need persistent knocking. One who senses he is at the very gates of heaven, entering the very throne room of Almighty God, is going to be a man of fervent prayer. One who has fervent love, a fervent heart, a volcanic heart of fire just pouring out upon God. It's the fervent prayers of a righteous man that avails much. But we can't just coach people to be fervent. It's like coaching betrothed couples on their wedding day to fervent love for each other. It's a worthless activity. They don't have, if they don't have fervent love for one another, it's not like a pastor is going to fix that. No, the fervency comes from love for God, for love for his kingdom, love for his church, love for Christ. True Christians will want to be fervent. The imbalance is heaven must be made to feel the force of this crying unto God a fervor, a commitment, a passion, a desire just erupting out of us for the glory of God, for the glory of God manifested in judgment, in resurrections, and regenerations, and transformations, and reformations. This needs to be the thing that we, we are passionate for. And God wants passionate praying, he wants fervent praying, he wants persistent praying. Prayer must be red hot, as an, another great uh, Christian revivalist said, heaven is a mighty poor market for ice. Heaven is a mighty poor market for ice. Doesn't buy it. Doesn't buy it. Coldness of spirit is like throwing a snow-covered log into the fireplace. 
It will only hinder prayer. Warmth of soul creates an atmosphere favorable to prayer. Fire is not fuss, mere noise and blowing and blustering. Fire is intensity. It glows. It burns. God dwells in a flame. The Holy Spirit descends in fire, not ice. So, brothers and sisters, I'm encouraging you, I'm urging you to persistent prayer tonight. Brave prayer. Bold prayer. Not feeble prayer, but men ought always to pray and not to faint. Persistent persistent. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we cry out to you tonight. Do something. Rise up, O God, be present now. Seems that we are right on the edge of the Red Sea. Our our, our toes are in the water. Your people are being being picked off by by the enemy behind us. We, We need you, O God, to come. We need you to rescue your people. We need you to redeem. We need you to come and, and do a mighty work of judgment, yes, but mercy, redemption. Uh, we pray for reformation, revival in the midst of judgments. Uh, God, we pray you do something. It feels that we are in a holding pattern. It, there's not much happening. There's not much in terms of conversions in our church. There hasn't much, much of a revival in this county. We've prayed for it for years, but we're not seeing it. God, we pray you do something. Please come down. Please open up the hearts of men and women. Do it by judgment. Do it by chastisement. Do it by waking them up, by your Holy Spirit's working, by preaching in the churches, by evangelism on the streets, by the persecution of your people, and then the judgment that follows. Father, just we pray you to, to act. We pray you to bring revival to our times, to our day, to our churches. And Father, we pray that we would be men and women of prayer. Heat us up, Spirit of God. Help us to see the the great needs of our churches, the great needs of our families, uh, the the, the apostasies that are going on around us, Father, the the murders that are happening uh, to, to people who are attending churches in this county. Father, we pray... That, uh, that some spiritual reviving would occur in our churches such that we'd see less murder and more regenerations, more new life, more of our people in this county rising up and walking in newness of life, less death, more life. In Jesus Christ we pray in his name, amen.